here's a, here's a potentially little-known fact about me. Back when, back when I was a teenager, so in both junior high and especially in, in senior high and high school, I was absolutely obsessed with, with skateboarding. Uh, but, I, but I wasn't really alone in this obsession, much more than it is today. Skateboarding was an extremely popular sport in the mid-90s to the late 2000s, and pun intended on the word extremely there. So as a professional skateboarder, Tony Hawk, his, his face was on just about everything from bagel bites in the freezer section to video games in the electronic section. And, and somewhere within that time, kids stopped asking their parents for, for basketball shoes, and they started asking their parents for, for DC shoes and, and vans and audios and other skateboarding brands like that. And, and kids swapped out their, their Tommy Hilfiger jackets for Element brand jackets and Volcom pants and, and toy machine sweatshirts. And if your only point of reference to skateboarding is as a wooden toy or, or stereotype as a troublemaking kid who likes to go out and, and vandalize property, you'd be missing a whole lot because skateboarding has a very unique subculture and it was something that I was completely infatuated with during this time. It admittedly still, you know, infatuated with it today. And this, this might seem a little bit silly, but being called a skateboarder back when I was in high school, that wasn't something that you would take lightly. <laughs> it, was a, it was a title, and you, you had to earn that title. It wasn't just enough to own a skateboard. No, you, you needed to know how to do tricks on it. But really, even that wasn't enough. You, you kind of had to systematically learn how to do tricks in, in a better way than the other people in your neighborhood to be considered a, a real skateboarder. And it's kind of funny that my, my parents are here today. But I, but I remember the day that I beat my neighborhood rival named Mikey Heiser, uh, they probably remember who that is, uh, in a game of skate, which if you don't know what skate is, it's, it's kind of like horse in basketball. Each person has to do a trick, and if the other person can't mimic it or match it, they get a, they get a letter. And that was a really big deal for, you know, ninth grade Colby. It was, it was also a, a big deal when my brother and I, we got our first video camera, and we were able to start filming our tricks to put them on uh, a brand new website at the time called YouTube, right? Uh, that was, uh, with that came an even further sense of validity. However, and with, with just about every popular subculture, there comes people who, who like the look or like the, like the atmosphere of that culture, but aren't really willing to put in the time to become legitimate members of it. Do you know what I mean by this? There are those who, who wear biker gear, like, like leather vests with particular patches sewn in onto the sides or on, onto the backs, and, but maybe they've never actually ridden a motorcycle before. And, and there's those uh, who, who really wear you know, merch from particular musical artists that they think are cool, but but they've never really listened to that person's music before. And, and skateboarding has these types too. We called them, in maybe a little bit of a derogatory sense, but we used to call those people posers. And, uh, and I'm not kidding about this. I remember that, that there were kids in my school growing up who wanted to, to seem like a skateboarder so badly that they would take sandpaper to the toes of their shoes 
So it would kind of create the appearance of wear and tear that, that the top of a skateboard's grip tape would cause. And others, they would, they, would, they would buy a skateboard, and I have a picture here just for a point of reference. They'd, they'd buy a skateboard, and they wouldn't learn any tricks, but they would spend a good amount of time grabbing the nose and tail of it and just kind of sliding it up and down a stair banister so that it have those little, little scuff marks on the, on the tail and in on the bottom. These, these posers wanted to be skateboarders because they thought it'd make them seem cool, but they really weren't willing to put up with the scraped knees in the practice that it took to learn. They, they might have looked the part on the outside, but in reality, they were faking the whole time. They, they were phony and only posing as the real thing. And something like this was happening in the prophet Micah's day as well. Micah, the sixth minor prophet, whose book is found near the back of our Old Testaments, had to deal with, with a bit of a poser problem. But in his day, people were not faking about riding skateboards. No, they were, they were faking, they were phony when it came to their faith. They, they walked the walk and they talked the talk, but in their hearts, they were far from the Lord. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, let us pause just to read our portion of Scripture from Micah today, and then we'll start by, by going to prayer. So this is Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and feel free to follow along in your Bibles. I will have it on the screen as well. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, hear you mountains, the, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's go to prayer. Lord God, we, we thank you that you have shown us the way to follow you. More than this, we, we thank you that you've given us your spirit to help us in this as we would all fail on our own. God, as, as we consider your word through the prophet Micah this morning, remind us that it is possible to fake a relationship with you and convict us so that because of Jesus, it might not be so with us. Lord, I ask that you allow me to speak only what you wish to be heard. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just like we did a few months ago when we looked at the book of Zechariah, I would like to give just kind of a, a very brief overview of the book of Micah and then zoom way in on a specific section of scripture within it. And this is, this is not because Micah isn't worth reading or studying in its entirety. It's exactly the opposite of this. May this 
kind of serve as a, as a teaser or something that might spur you on to read the rest of the book yourself as we consider only a portion of it that is particularly relevant to, to our time now. Micah was an 8th century prophet who primarily spoke to the southern kingdom of Israel, also known as Judah. And he, he had a couple of words to say to the, to the northern kingdom before its destruction under the hands of Sargon II of Assyria as, as well. And Micah was a contemporary to people like King Hezekiah and the prophets Isaiah and Amos. And, and because he was a contemporary to these folks, it really shouldn't come as a surprise that Micah had a similar message as them too. So he, like Isaiah, but especially like Amos, uh, he, was, he was all about faithfulness to God through right ethical action. All around him were, were a lot of people who were doing right-looking things for, for very wrong reasons. They, they were fakes, whitewashed tombs, as Jesus might put it, and, and Micah was on a mission to, to call these people out. And he does this by way of three particular sermons. And each of the sermons, they start with the word here. That's why I have that in the blue box there. And, and each one, it also starts with a section of judgment and doom. But every single one of them, they all end with, with a section of hope and a way towards restoration. And in his first sermon there, so in chapter 1, verse 2, so there is an introductory verse that kind of explains who Micah the prophet is. And then the first sermon starts. And in this first one, Micah wants these oppressive land barons to recognize their sinfulness. So those who take from others without a second thought will have disaster hung around their necks. And in the second sermon, which spans from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 15, Micah, he uses metaphor to describe the, the leadership of Israel and Judah as ones like cannibals, who have cut God's people up to put into a cauldron to cook. It's kind of nasty. But their royal administrators and their military officials, their priests and their prophets, had begun to view those under them as subhuman and only a means to an end, a, a tool to accomplish what they felt was right. But, but what did they think was right? The northern kingdom, they seemed to have thought that building an empire and amassing wealth were more important than anything else. And, and God sent Assyria, the nation of Assyria, to wipe that from their minds, though. And in the southern kingdom, on the other hand, taking hints from the northern kingdom's destruction, the southern kingdom, they committed themselves to revival and a whole lot of religious reform. But they, they also now had to pay heavy taxes to the nation of Assyria. They had become kind of like vassals to that nation, and it, and it seems like Judah didn't see the problem with stealing land and, and oppressing the poor to get an extra bit of money to make up for this deficit. I guess, they, I guess they missed the irony in being all right with sin and stealing, but also enforcing seemingly orthodox religious reform at the same time. In other words, the people were posing. They had only an adherence to certain external actions that the Lord had called them to. However, internally, in, in their hearts, they were far from God. And this brings us to Micah's third and final sermon in this book, which spans from 
chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 20, the very last verse in the book. And, and it's the beginning of this sermon that I'd like us to zoom in on this morning. So let us turn again to Micah chapter 6 as we consider all of that background. And we will reread the first five verses there. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And if you're a note taker, this leads us to the first blank in our bulletin notes this morning, which reads, the Lord calls upon the earth itself to witness how Israel has forgotten her covenant with him. The first two sermons in the book of Micah, they they start off with doom and gloom. In this third one, it does contain appropriate elements of judgment, especially if we were to read on a little bit later into chapter 6. But at least the the opening of this third sermon here, the, the tone is a little bit different. Instead of a divine warrior, God is coming to his people almost like an exasperated judge who just cannot believe that this particular party is, is back in front of him again. In other words, this first section of chapter 6 is a courtroom scene a frequent metaphor that is, that is used by the biblical prophets. And who is on trial? The people of God, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And if you've ever spent any time in a criminal court, or if you ever stayed at home and, and watched a TV show like Judge Judy, uh, you, you might be familiar with the, the major players in an average courtroom. There's, there's the judge, who is the one who's, who's hearing the trial. There's the plaintiff and often the plaintiff's attorney, who are the ones who are bringing the charge before the court, and then there is the defendant's side and their lawyer, and often there are also witnesses. And in this court, Micah's court, we are first introduced to the plaintiff, who is is the Lord. And this is kind of confusing, because God, he also seems to be acting as the judge here too. And And the plaintiff's attorney is the prophet Micah, and the defendants, obviously, are the, the people of Judah. But right away, some, some witnesses are called forward. However, these aren't human witnesses. Instead, God, through Micah, calls upon the mountains and the hills of the earth to witness what God's got to say to them, assumedly to, to verify what he's saying is true. And it, and it might be kind of odd to think that God would specifically call out some mountains to verify witness, but it's actually a pretty common thing that happens in Scripture. It's also called poetic mirrorism. So that means it is a reference to a small piece of something with the intention about talking about the whole thing. And so for kind of a, kind of a modern example of that, when we say something like lock, stock, and barrel, right, we're not talking about just those three components of a gun. We're talking about the entire gun. 
And it's, it's the same thing here. God is calling upon the mountains and the hills, representative of, of the entire earth itself, to verify the sins of Israel. The whole earth is standing witness against them. But what's the charge? The charge is that, that God's people have forgotten their covenant with him. God himself has done nothing wrong, but it seems like the southern kingdom of Israel has conveniently forgotten the grace that the Lord had showed them in the past, and consequently, the true way they were supposed to respond to such grace. And then God, he spends a bit of time reminding them of that covenant and that grace. And this, and this recitation, that, that area there is just chocked full of dense biblical imagery and, and figures and place names from the Exodus and Numbers and Joshua. And each one of them is a, is a callback to when God acted as a liberator and a savior and a, and a provider on his people's behalf. And, and it would be worth it, I think, it really would be worth it to slow down a bit and look at each of these stories to see how they would be good reminders of God's grace, because every single one of them are. We won't do that now, though, because we have just miles to go. But uh, there is time, and there are questions to, uh, that revolve around that to talk about during your Bible fellowship groups. Uh, but, all, but all in all, the point of this section here is, is this. God has continued to show kindness to his people and has fulfilled his promises to, to bring them into the promised land. But Israel has done nothing but break their covenant with the Lord, and instead of kindness, all they have shown is cruelty. But let's continue forward. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God does not desire empty worship or lifeless religious rituals. Trial continues. God's people have been called up to the stand. And as, as we can see here, at least as we can kind of, kind of get the feel from this particular section of Scripture, God's people are just immediately defensive. They don't really deny the accusations against them. Instead, they attempt to deflect and point out how they have been faithful to him through the temple sacrificial system, right? Like a, like a teenager mad at their parents, they're basically saying to God, whoa, that's, that's not fair. We are doing exactly what you are asking. And I guess it really should be somewhat obvious maybe that verse 6, but especially verse 7, that last one there, are rhetorical. For the most part, there's something called hyperbole, and the ridiculousness of their claims just keeps growing more and more and more the longer they talk. Right? Verse 6 in the offering of a calf, a year old, that actually comes right from the book of Leviticus. So in Leviticus 22, verse 27, there are multiple animals listed, which are acceptable burnt offerings for the Lord, and, and young calves are positioned in that text to be really the very best offering that one can give. So the people are, are kind of saying, 
hey, we, we already are offering you the best, God. What, what more could you want from us? Would a thousand rams or would 10,000 rivers of oil please you? Maybe quantity is just as important as, as quality. But then they, they take things a step too far. They ask if God would be pleased with their own firstborn, with human sacrifice. If young calves and rivers of oil weren't enough, would something for their, from their own flesh please the Lord? Yet, and of course, we can see from their defense that the people of God have completely missed the point. Not only of God's questioning from the earlier verses of this chapter, but even really from the sacrificial system itself. Animal sacrifice ultimately was not what restored a person's relationship with God. It was not a bribe, and it was definitely not a way to earn God's favor. No, that was how the pagan nations around Israel worshipped. Israel was supposed to function differently, though. These sacrifices the ones that they would you know, offer in, in the temple there were meant to be an outward sign of the inner attitude of a person's broken and contrite heart. But Israel, they had missed the point, or maybe they had just ignored what they knew to be right. They had embraced empty ritual instead of genuine faithfulness. In other words, and like we have already stated, the people were posing. Let's read the last verse one more time. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So God does not desire empty worship or lifeless religious rituals. Instead, his desire is for Israel to have a heart like his. Put differently, God, he doesn't really want a specific type of offering, but a specific type of, of people. And in this final act of Micah's courtroom scene, the, the prophet fleshes out the type of people that the Lord desires Israel to be. The, the sad thing is, though, this really should have been something that should have been already plain to them. All over Torah law are passages that, that explain this very thing with Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22 being one of the, the more popular ones. According to Deuteronomy, the Lord required that his people follow them, would follow him with all of their hearts. And a part of doing that was making sure that the fatherless and the widow and the stranger had clothing and that justice was properly observed in the land. Micah is not really saying anything new here. God had already told them what was good. They had just conveniently closed their eyes and their ears to it. Justice, love, and humility were always part of the picture. They've always, they always were the proper response to the grace that God had shown them by saving them. Yet, Israel at that moment was just the opposite. Unjust, oppressive, and selfish. So, and in maybe in another act of grace here, God through Micah re-explains what he requires of them. First, they were to do justice. This means that they were to concern themselves with the love of neighbor. The word justice here is the really kind of a fun word to say in Hebrew. It's, it's the word mishpat. And, it, and it's actually, uh, it's, it's mostly used in connection with, with legal and financial affairs, right? But, but all in all, 
If one's focus is on serving God rather than self, they will naturally want justice for others, and they will naturally seek out ways to make sure that that kind of thing is realized. And second, they were to love kindness. Or if you're not using the translation that I'm using, which is the ESV, your Bible might say, love mercy. But but what Micah is talking about here is somewhat similar to his previous point. Just like doing justice, loving kindness also means having a right action towards one another. But but this word, it really means more than just being friendly, right? It's more like loyalty. It's loving someone even when they don't love you back and being kind to someone even when they do not reciprocate that kindness. And third, they were to walk humbly with their God. Said in another way, God's desire for his people was that they learn to live in a way that wasn't proud or or self-centered, but in a way that that paid attention to others. Walking humbly is the journey of of self-giving and self-sacrificing and self-emptying. It isn't the act of dehumanizing another so that you can feel good about violating them, like the military leaders and the religious leaders and the land barons were doing in Micah's day. It is to live in such a way that takes seriously reconciliation and transformation and healing because that is how God himself walks within this world. So in in sum, what Micah is saying here is that Israel must be faithful to the Lord because he has been faithful to them. He has shown them great mercy and grace and expects them to do the same for others. Empty religious rituals, those just won't cut it. Poser faith is not good enough. If God's people want to truly live a life that pleases the Lord, they need to do justice, they need to love mercy, and they need to walk humbly with the one who is characterized by self-giving and radical reconciliation. And that's the minor prophet Micah. He's pretty cool, right? At least I think he is. And at least the portion of this book that we read really just, really just excites me every time I read it. And, and, and by the way, I kind of feel somewhat uh, the need to say this, but uh, this is the second to last minor prophet that I, I plan on looking at within the sermon series. We are skipping a few like Joel and a couple others, that are good to read, um, but uh, they're pretty repetitive when it comes to the other themes that we've looked at before. We'll end our series next time, so in about eight weeks from now, by looking at the book of Hosea. So if you've you know, you got a long stretch of time, if you want to spend some time in a book, maybe read Hosea to get prepared for that eight weeks from now. But before we bring all of this to a close this morning, I think it would be wise just to kind of pause and reflect on how Micah can and should speak to us as Christians today. Because there really is a lot of things that could be said. So, here is, here's two brief ways that we might apply this book now. And the, and the first one is this. Jesus rejects disingenuous acts of worship. Now, admittedly, this is kind of tricky. Because it's easy to mistake this type of stuff for works righteousness. When, when the Bible talks about doing certain things or behaving certain ways without, without looking at the full picture, sometimes we can think these actions are what give us a right relationship with the Lord. So things like doing justice and 
and walking humbly and, and worshiping God properly. That is not the case, though. Salvation comes first. This is not an issue that is a means to achieve salvation. The Lord showed grace to Israel by, by rescuing them out of Egypt and, and entering into a covenant with them, and it was only after that when God expected them to conform to his image through proper worship and through the ethics that were laid out for them within his Torah law. And so it is the case with us. Once we pledge allegiance to Christ and we accept the grace offered to us through his blood, we are then given the gift of salvation. Nothing we can do can earn that. But once we, once we have this relationship with the Lord, we aren't supposed to just stay where we are, right? He, he expects us to conform to his image with the help of the Spirit so that we can worship him properly and practice the ethics that are laid out for us within Scripture. But, and especially within this, this wealthy Christian West Michigan bubble that we live in, I think it is really, really easy to have, or at least to fall into the temptation of having poser-like faith. Just like Micah's audience thought they had done everything God wanted when they sacrificed a number of animals, it is really simple to get baptized, to join a church, to attend Sunday service and Bible study, and still completely miss the heart of God, right? Some think that they have pleased God because they celebrate communion frequently or tie the good percentage of their earnings. Some others, and this is kind of a joke, but, but some others even might think that they are really doing well when they, they've got those cute little fish decals in the back of their cars or they post Christian-like things on their Facebook. And of, of course, there's nothing wrong with doing these things. They're all great things, but we need to remember that good things can quickly become poor but comfortable substitutes for general or, you know, actual genuine heart-level faith. Check, check your heart. Why are you worshiping? Why are you attending these things and doing these deeds? Do you really care for what that which God cares for, which is justice and, and loving kindness and humility that all promote the other above the self? Or are you just using sandpaper on your shoes to make it look like you skateboard? Are you just using worship to promote yourself and and religious ritual in a, in a transactional type of way. God does not want a specific type of offering, but a specific type of people. Micah plainly states that all the sacrifices in the world will get us nowhere if we do not have the sincere faith that bears fruit in love of God and neighbor. And in relation to that, Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount have always kind of haunted me, in a way, if I'm, if I'm being honest. In Matthew 7, after spending three whole very, very brutal chapters talking about ethics and how those who know the Lord should strive to live, Jesus starts speaking to those who might wish to act like Christians but don't really do the will of the Father. And let me read this for you. This is, this is Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, it's possible to act a certain way and to do certain things to appear like a believer to everyone else, but only truly have phony faith. And I think that if you hear Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and you find yourself legitimately concerned, that is actually a good sign of a repentant and a regenerate heart. You are bothered about the things that God is bothered about. That's good. But if you hear Jesus' words there in Matthew 7 and are only apathetic, examine yourself. And more so, remember the grace of God. Micah, he started off his third sermon in chapter 6 by simulating a, a courtroom scene where a plaintiff charges the people of Israel to remember the redemptive acts of the Lord within their history. And this is good for us to do too, because when someone forgets the past, gratitude and the feelings of closeness are quickly forgotten as well. And, and Micah, as, as he really understood it, a group that does, does not remember what God has done will soon not be able to please God with their actions very well. The southern kingdom of Israel had that responsibility to remember how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and how he provided for them all along the way. But we also have a responsibility to remember our deliverance from slavery that God granted us through Jesus' blood spilled. And just like in, in Micah's day, living in remembrance of this mandates genuine faithfulness and fidelity to our Lord. So let us remember that Jesus practiced proper justice in his life on earth. He called his disciples to love their neighbors and to forgive and to do right even in the face of wrongdoing. And not only did he teach it, but he lived it. Jesus, he displayed loving kindness when he showed us mercy by taking our sins upon himself. He did not deserve to die. We do. But he gave up from himself anyway so that we might have life with him. And Jesus walked humbly by not considering equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage or his own power, but instead he became a man and served others even to the point of death on a cross. Will we recognize God's grace shown to us? Will we remember his salvific acts? Will we respond with genuine and not fake faith, emulating Jesus' witness out of gratitude? In other words, remember God does not want a specific type of offering, but a specific type of people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the witness of Micah. Through this prophet, we are reminded that you are a God who deeply loves us and does not abandon us even when we mess up just over and over and over. In reality, Lord, we all are posers. We all have sinned against you and have broken the covenant you made with us. But Lord, you have graciously taught us, both through example and through your word, how to live better. Let us now, through your Spirit's guidance, learn to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you as we simulate, or as we seek to emulate your kingdom here on earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. Well, in reality, we're all posers, right? You know, all of us have failed. We all 
deserve nothing but death. But thank goodness for Jesus. Amen? Amen. We can celebrate him this morning. We can celebrate him by, by going out and fellowshipping during our Bible fellowship groups and eating good cookies and things like that. But don't forget to remember the grace of God. You're dismissed. <laughs>